0: we were reading a couple of sutta passages that uh, use the word uh, atamayata. Apparently it only appears in about six places in the Pali canon, uh, according to Ajahn Santikaro. So it's not a very common word, but these two suttas are places where it appears. So I'll I'll read the, the first passage again that uh, I read uh, last time. So this is uh, from the Uh, Sapurisa Sutta, first of all, that's Majjhima Nikaya, middle length, Discourses, number 113. A person who is not truly good enters and remains in the first jhana. They notice, I have gained the attainment of first jhana. They exalt themselves for that attainment of first jhana, and they disparage others. This is a quality of a person who is not truly good. The truly good person notices... The Blessed One has spoken of non-identification, non-fabrication, even with regard to the attainment of the first jhana. For, however they conceive it, the fact is ever other than that. So, making non-identification their focal point, they <laughs> Time to get up? <laughs> so, making non-identification their focal point, They neither exalt themselves for that attainment of the first jhana, nor do they disparage others. This is the quality of a person who is truly good, and similarly through all the jhanas. The clause italicized above, which is for however they conceive it, the fact is ever other than that, is a very famous and much-discussed phrase in Theravada literature. It appears in a number of places in the canon. The Pali original is Yena Yena Himanyanti, Tatatango di Anyatati. It's discussed extensively in Concept and Reality by Bhikkhunyanananda. It's also quoted above in Chapter 4. And this next passage from the, the suttas, which um, we didn't read out last time, this uh, comes from Sutta number 137 in the uh, Middle Length Discourses. I think this is called the, the Great Forty. Uh, is the name of the discourse, the great 40, as in 4-0. And what bhikkhus is equanimity that is unified based on unity? There is equanimity regarding the base of infinite space, the base of infinite consciousness, the base of no-thingness, and the base of neither (coughs) perception nor non-perception. This bhikkhus is equanimity that is unified based on unity. Here because by depending and relying on equanimity that is unified, based on unity, abandoned and abandon and surmount equanimity that is diversified based on diversity. It is thus that this is abandoned. It is thus that this is surmounted. Because by depending and relying on non identification, abandon and surmount equanimity that is unified based on unity. It is thus this is abandoned. It is thus this is surmounted. So it was in reference to this that it was said, therein, by depending on this, abandon that. And I, I talked about this a little bit uh, before and uh, referred to this this passage, so that um, this uh, the progression of different kinds of equanimity and so different degrees of, uh, say, coolness and uh, even-mindedness, um, uh, that uh, it's it's described here in terms of relationship to the the jhanas and the 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 uh, formed jhanas and uh, the formless jhanas and uh, so forth. But uh, as I mentioned last time, I feel it's also helpful to to recognise this as a sort of a deepening, uh, uh, say, progression of of uh, detachment and uh, evenness of of attitude in relationship to uh, all experience, so that it relates. To vipassana meditation as much as it does to to concentration, in uh, the, my perspective on it and in using these reflections. So uh, as I mentioned last time, you can see it as the um, uh, equanimity based on diversity. So in the in the presence of all, all of that's different varieties of stuff, there is uh, a steadiness, a coolness, and then a deepening of of insight. Then there is uh, uh, equanimity based on unity, so that all of that, rather than being varied stuff, it's all seen as just that, just the all, it's all anicca dukkha anatta it's just the field of experience, is all uh, impermanent, unsatisfactory not self, so that insight unifies all things, that those are the qualities, the characteristics of all existent things, mental, physical all perceptions, feelings and so on, is anicca dukkha anatta uh, impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self so when that that insight is formed, that unifies all experience. So you might think you are Caroline, you are Eva, you are uh, uh, this person, that person, the other person. That uh, we are um, <coughs> saying, well, I am James, I am Caroline. But you're also an Dukkha Anatta. <laughs> right? <laughs> Anybody here who's not impermanent, unsatisfactory, or as a, an eternal self, please raise your hand. Obviously, a trick question. So, that, that unity comes from insight in this respect. And then the third level, that of atamayata, is, uh, is the letting go of subject object. There is uh, letting go of, of this and that. So, that in, in essence, there's only this. As another way of reflecting on this, that I, I like to, to consider is uh, it re- can also relate to the different vivekas, the different uh, kinds of what's called seclusion. Um, so that there, again, there's, there's, there's three of these. So kaya viveka is physical seclusion, jitta viveka is uh, internal seclusion, uh, withdrawing internally, and then upadi viveka is seclusion from the, the defilements. So there's a, a, a way that these, uh, I feel, line up uh, and relate to each other, because so viveka means withdrawal or disengagement, retreat. So like a, a um, going on retreat is called you know, uh, going on a uh, viveka. So kaya viveka is physical seclusion, like going on a retreat, being, um, being quiet, being still, uh, uh, physical solitude. So kaya, viveka, kaya is the body, viveka is... Uh, seclusion, so physical seclusion is the first kind of, of uh, viveka. And so, like this winter retreat, would be a, a way of establishing kaya viveka. Then, chitta viveka is uh, that sense of internal seclusion, so that um, r- irrespective of what the world is doing uh, externally, whether you happen to be sitting here on a, a Sunday evening having a Dhamma reading, or whether you're on the, t- or the London Underground, uh, you're uh, sitting. Um, in the, In a car on the m twenty five or you're um, s- uh, s- uh, standing up in front of a, a class full of school kids back at your regular job, whatever it might be, Jitta Viveka is that internal seclusion, a sense of of uh, observing and uh, a conscious knowing of the uh, the um, uh, the field of experience, but a, a detachment a disentanglement from that so uh, this is w- one of the reasons why. Uh, Chidhurst Monastery has the name Chitta Viveka because uh, Lumbosameto realised this was an extremely important quality to develop. When he first uh, came to London, uh, having left the, the forest monasteries of Northeast Thailand, uh, he witnessed his mind doing a lot of oh, "I don't want to be here. London is so noisy. All these people want to bother me. I want to practice. All these people keep showing up." And, and uh, uh, this is the Short version. <laughs> and, uh, so he, but he saw, he's a very wise person, and he re- saw what his mind was doing and realized, well hang on a minute, uh, how, many, how many Buddhist monastics are there in the UK? <coughs> About ten. <laughs> how many uh, B- uh, Buddhist monastics teach meditation? About one, maybe two. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested in Buddhist monasticism and you're interested in meditation, where are you going to go? Hampstead Vihara. <laughs> so he realized, well, you know, we've been invited here, we are here, so of course people show up. And at the moment, here we are in London. So he he realized that he was setting up this kind of duality, like, I want to be uh, in my hut in the forest in Thailand. I want to be at Parnalachad, or I want to be at, in my cave at Tamsung Pet. Um, and he saw that his mind was, was fixed on this idea of Kaya of physical seclusion. So he very consciously started to develop the Jittaviveka, the internal seclusion, and just uh, not seeking uh, peacefulness or um, uh, say uh, not taking refuge in physical seclusion, but rather developing quite consciously the inner seclusion of Jittaviveka and, and his development of the listening to the inner sound, the, the nada, uh, nada sound. Uh, was very much a part of that development of the Citta Viveka. and it had such a, 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 an impact on him, and was such a significant part of his practice that that was why he chose the name Chittaviveka for Chithurst Monastery. Also, because there was Chit in the, the name of the village, just by coincidence. So they say. Uh, so anyway, uh, then Upadhi Viveka is. Um, uh, we talked about Upadi a few times, so uh, Upadi literally means that which um, supports from uh, that, uh, that which supports from below or, or, you know, or is, um, that which uh, say is uh, is supported um, so it 's sometimes translated as the essentials of existence or the substratum of rebirth um, uh, that which uh, sustains the habits of identification so uh, an easy way of, of referring to it that I like to use uh, at the moment, um, trying to, because there isn't a perfect English phrase that really represents it, is addiction to becoming. And so I mentioned this a few, uh, a few uh, readings ago. So an addiction is not necessarily manifest, but it's there. It's like yeah, you it, it's in the system. If the the mind is addicted, so upadi is like that underlying tendency, that underlying kind of a um, habit. Um, and so that uh, it's addiction to becoming or addiction to defined existence is uh, upadi. So upadi viveka is the, uh, the mind free of that addiction, having uh, dropped that addiction. So upadi viveka is synonymous with, with uh, liberation. So then to continue. To help develop a clearer sense of what this term is pointing to, it might be helpful to explore its etymology a little more deeply. And then this is a, uh, uh, a passage from uh, Richard Gombrich uh, in his very helpful uh, book of his called um, uh, How Buddhism Began, the Conditioned Genesis of the Early Teachings. And there's a, a number of different papers in there, uh, Metaphor, Allegory and Satire is uh, the, um, uh, the, the title of the, the, the particular uh, uh, paper that this comes from. In the Vedanta, to be wholly and exclusively aware of Brahman was at the same time to be Brahman. And that means like the ultimate reality, uh, the, the, the supreme uh, supreme being. The origins of this idea seem to lie in a theory of sense perception in which the grasping hand supplies a dominant analogy. It takes the shape of what it apprehends. So the hand reaches out and takes hold of the thing. So the grasping hand supplies the dominant analogy. It takes the shape of what it apprehends. Vision was similarly explained. The eye sends out some kind of ray uh, (coughs) which takes the shape of what we see. So... As if the, the, uh, the energy of the mind goes out through the eye, uh, uh, takes the shape of the object, and then uh, and then comes back with it, having there the, is uh, mind ray gone out, occupied this object, then it comes back with that, and then the mind recognizes clock. Similarly, thought a thought conforms to its object. This idea is encapsulated in the term tan mayatā consisting of that, unquote that the thought of the gnostic, the one who knows, or the one who is aware or meditator, becomes consubstantial with the thing realized so that that, that term tan mayatā tan means that, mayatā means made of so tan mayatā, so it's like the, the mind's energy is going out Occupying this and then returning having got that image and then returns and says clock or with a thought that a, a thought arises and again the mind energy goes into the thought and goes memory of uh, Chittaviveka monastery and then, and then sort of comes back with that thought so that that tanmayata literally means consisting of that or made of that so it's, it's become the mind has become it's gone out and it's, it's now Been sort of uh, born into that, it's it's made of that. (coughs) That is to say, with the opposite quality, attamayata, the mind's energy, quote unquote, does not go out to the object and occupy it. It neither makes an objective thing or a subjective observer knowing it. Hence, non identification, quote unquote. (coughs) Refers to the subjective aspect, and non-fabrication, mostly to the objective. So that atamayata uh, is that kind of not going outness, <laughs> so the mind not uh, going out to, to make a thing, um, and also uh, in these two different terms, like non-identification is one way it's translated, and non-fabrication is uh, is another common way. So. Non-identification is not uh, that not creating the sense of an eye who's the perceiver, and uh, non-fabrication is not cr- creating the, a solid object that is the, the perceived. Also I should mention that Richard Gombrich, he's an academic, but uh, I, I do really appreciate his writings. He's a very um, accessible writer, and uh, even though he, he can come, uh, come across as a sort of very academic academic sort of Oxford professor and so on. Uh, I was very um, struck by his, uh, his humility. In this, this same book, there's a, a paper that he wrote about uh, the story of Angulimala, and um, his uh, uh, exploring the Angulimala Sutta and his uh, um, theory that he, he, he puts forward that um, uh, perhaps Angulimala, uh, who was a bandit and who killed uh, nearly a thousand people, as a bandit before he met the Buddha and uh, ended up becoming a monk and then an arahant, how uh, he suspected that uh, Angulimala was probably a devotee of the goddess Kali. Uh, And he puts this forward in this essay, and it's all very well substantiated in his um, knowledge of the the Vedas. He's also a professor of Sanskrit. um, Well, he was. uh, He was the professor of Sanskrit at at Oxford University, uh, as well as Pali. And and he was the president of the Pali Text Society. So when I was writing to him to ask permission for him to uh, uh, say allow us to use some of these essays in this book, I, uh, I mentioned going back to the Pilgrim Karmanita, uh <clears throat> and uh, if you remember, that's the, the the novel that was written by this Danish Danish um, uh, scholar, uh, which uses the, the the encounter of the Buddha and Pukusati in the in the potter's shed. Uh, as a sort of core theme for the story, uh, Angulimala also features very strongly in that book, and uh, and the author Karl Gillerup uh, has Angulimala very much as a devotee of the goddess Kali. So I happened to mention this to to Richard Gombrich. I said, "Oh, um, it's uh, I was very interested in your essay about Angulimala and the goddess Kali, and uh, 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 it sounds as though you're very familiar with this uh, this book." Called the Pil- uh, Pilgrim Carmenita by Carl Gellerup, and so on and so forth, and uh, and he wrote back and very humbly said, "No, I never heard of it." And uh, said, you know, "Once again, the fumbling and stum- the fumbling and stumbling academics are uh, preceded by the poets. This time by a full century." <laughs> so I thought that's very gracious of him to say that the the, you know, the poets got there a hundred years before he did, uh, to say, uh, and to uh, come up with that idea. So. Uh, I, uh, uh, he's a very um, uh, accomplished scholar, but I was impressed uh, with his, uh, his humility and also the fact he gave us very uh, free permission to use these, uh, these quotations um, through this book. The reader should also carefully bear in mind the words, quote, the origins of this idea, unquote, um, and not take the Vedic concept and imagery as representing the Buddhist use of the word entirely accurately. So that's the, the Vedic idea was that the eye sends out a ray and occupies an object and comes back with it. So that's not a Buddhist idea, uh, but probably that um, principle or that view of things was informing the, the terminology that the Buddha used. Um, and so that uh, it's sort of bouncing off or, or, or kind of a, informed by the Vedic um, uh, theory just like uh, Ajahn Tanisro makes uh, that uh, say that the the Vedic uh, uh, view of fire and how fire worked and, and how it operated, that informed the way the Buddha related to it and used the imagery of fire. So in the same way, the Buddha uses this Vedic imagery of perception and then sort of adds his own twist to it, um, and so that uh, uh, it's representing this. Um, uh, you know, a Buddhist perspective, but uh, they, they, you never find the Buddha saying that the eye sends out a ray that becomes consubstantial with an object and, and brings it back. So you don't, you don't have that same model, but he's just taking that as a common idea and then um, uh, using that as a, as a sort of uh, 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 starting off point. In the state of Atamayata, in its Buddhist usage... There is no actual, quote, becoming consubstantial, unquote, with the thing that's being known. It's more that the deluded identification of the mind with the object is being dispelled. So that uh, <coughs> the, rather than that, that there being no ray being sent out, it's, instead it's uh, that the mind is not creating the idea that I am perceiving this clock, but there is, there is seeing. And then the mind creates the word clock out of memory and, and, uh, uh, and language. One helpful way of understanding a tamayatā's role and significance is to relate it to the other two items in the final triad of the nine insights as outlined by Ajahnpura Dasa. These three qualities describe the upper reaches of spiritual refinement. sunyatā voidness or emptiness tatatā thusness or suchness, attamayata, uh, non-identification or not-thatness. The three qualities speak to the nature of experience when many of the coarser defilements have fallen away. When the qualities of emptiness and suchness are considered, even though the conceit of identity might have already been seen through, there can still remain subtle traces of clinging, clinging to the idea of an objective world being known by a subjective knowing, even though no sense of I is discernible at all. There can be a feeling of a this, which is knowing a that, and either saying yes to it, in the case of suchness, or no, in the case of emptiness. A tamayata is the closure of that whole domain, expressing the insight that there is no that. It's the genuine collapse of both the illusion of separateness of subject and object, and also of the discrimination between phenomena as being somehow substantially different from each other. And then there's a little quote to finish this section. Uh, this is from the Xin Xin Ming, the verses on the faith mind by the, the uh, third Chan patriarch. Do not remain in the dualistic state. Avoid such pursuits carefully. If there is even a trace of this and that, of right and wrong, the mind essence will be lost in confusion. So this is a famous uh, verse from the northern tradition, the Xin Xin Ming. It begins, The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. But you might be familiar with it in that respect. So before carrying on, are there any um, thoughts or questions? Uh, I particularly, I find for myself, I mean, I wrote this, so of course it makes sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfectly clear what this means <laughs> but uh, if you remember there's the nine da's the nine eyes that the, uh, the Ajahn Buddha Dasa talked about so you have these instead of the three characteristics of existence you've got nine characteristics of existence so and they kind of go in, a, in increasing um, degrees of refinement so anicca is the first uh, impermanence uh, dukkha unsatisfactoryness not self uh, the first three then the next three were dhamma-tittata, which means uh, established in dhamma, or you could say um, they're, uh, they're formed according to the laws of nature. Dhamma-tittata. So all things, mental, physical, their form is entirely in accordance with nature. They are, they're, they're, structure, they're structured according to, to uh, uh, natural uh, principles. Dhamma-niyamata, uh, they, they function uh, according to natural law, they, the way they, they act, the way they change, everything mental or physical, it's completely under the laws of nature and functions according to, and the changes that occur in them change according to the laws of nature. So Dhamma-niyamata. And then the, number six was Idhapachayata, the basic law of, of cause and effect. That. Um, <coughs> how uh, cause, the laws of cause and effect work together. So in the last three are sunyata, tatata and atamayata that are being talked about here. So that um, uh, w- uh, what I'm pointing out here is that even if uh, there's that insight has been developed very uh, profoundly and substantially through those, say, those first six uh, uh, characteristics of, of existence... Um, and uh, there and even if the sense of i has, has fallen away and there is not even any asmi mana no conceit uh, of i there can still be uh, a, a, um, uh, a a subtle subject object duality yeah, as i said there can be the feeling of of this which is knowing of that even if that's that this isn't sort of formed into an i am experiencing i feel there's, there's a there's a here that's experiencing a, a there uh, and then in that the framework of that subject object uh, duality uh, <coughs> you can say that uh, all things that are experienced um, in that um, uh, objective realm that the uh, the Tatata is is uh, saying yes to it. It's it's everything is thus. All things are such. They are thus. They're exactly this way. Uh, and uh, so that's tatata or suchness. And then um, the uh, the quality of sunyatā uh, is a saying uh, a saying no to things. Like well, that, yeah, it looks like there's a thing, but actually there is no thing there. <laughs> it's empty. It's such and it's empty. So this can be very frustrating. Um, but these are also helpful to to uh, say not be taking as fixed positions but recognizing how you can say in relationship to all experience um, that uh, it is such, it's thus and also it is, uh, it's it's empty of self and what belongs to a self. So these two qualities, uh, sunyata and tatata, they're both ways of reflecting on the, the the world of things so if your mind inclines towards nihilism and negativity and wanting to get rid of things then it's good to reflect on suchness on the yes side of it if you're a nihilist by by habit if you're a an eternalist and you say you're yes everything is great love life is wonderful things are good yes then it's good to reflect on emptiness that says and no, <laughs> that makes sense. So uh, you're always, these these are ways of reflecting. They're tools to use to reflect on the nature of experience. And so, <coughs> like when we say things are anicca, things are changing. We say, well, yeah, that's only because there's a belief that there are things. Yeah. <laughs> you say this clock is changing; it's ticking away. Six thirty-one. It <laughs> indicates so. Uh, it changes, but the, the mind has already created an it, which is a, a, a supposed thing that's, that's doing the changing. Um, so that each of those terms, they are, they're tools to use, they're not like an absolute statement, they're just tools to use to help uh, the mind to, to loosen its attachments and identifications and to, to see the reality clearly. So oh, and then just to uh, uh, and also this is this is not a particularly canonical way of speaking. it's just a sort of a, a way I, I've uh, found of helping to reflect myself and also it it's a um, uh, having used those words in that particular way and the, as as uh, these kind of reflective tools to to uh, get perspective on the the mind. Um, so you, you know the people have written philosophical treatises about well, what does emptiness really mean? I mean, you you read some of these, uh, uh, like say, um, northern Buddhist texts out of China or Tibet, and you have like thirteen different kinds of emptiness or twenty-eight kinds of emptiness, and, or the, you get treatises about well, suchness, you know, that well, suchness it doesn't really exist. You can't really say that suchness is 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 this because it you know it's talked about here like this and talked about there like that, and so it's uh, it's an erroneous idea, and uh and so. People can take hold of the words and create whole big um, careers out of them. <laughs> but the point is not. Uh, to, uh, in this way of, of approaching the Dhamma teachings, it's uh, say not trying to find some kind of ultimately perfect definition or what's the, the, the true and proper, correct understanding that's flawless, but rather, does that make sense to me? If I, if I bring out the word suchness, Say, all things are thus. What happens in the heart? If, the, if you bring up the, the reflection, all things are empty. What does, that, uh, what does that do in the heart? If you bring up the reflection, there are no things. What does that do to the heart? So you're, you're experimenting, you're, you're p- applying these particular tools and seeing what happens, seeing what effect it has on the mind. And sometimes you apply a particular tool, a particular approach, uh, and it works really, really well. And then the mind gets used to it. So you keep, you, you think, all oh, right, suchness, wow. And that kind of changes the whole landscape. I mean, this is amazing, this is great. And so then you're really into suchness, you're really big on suchness. And you become this kind of suchness bore driving your friends nuts while they're trying to eat their lunch about, about the suchness of the potato that, that you're eating and, they, they, and so then you can get so over focused on it that then it starts to lose its, its strength it loses its power because it's become a thing that the mind has sort of made its own and, and, it's, and it's got sort of woven into your um, your habitual ideas and perceptions and it loses its strength so then you find oh now it becomes helpful to talk about emptiness <laughs> or to, to look at just change. You know. So that the, you're always referring to what actually is happening in your mind rather than a, a theory that oh this makes sense, this is perfect, I'll, you know, I'll write that on my wall and believe in that. But rather, well, what, does, what, does, what effect does this have? How does this work? So, any thoughts? Reflections? Yes, Ajahn no, Jit about that.
1: Um, I wonder, um, how would you think that Lung Po um intuitive awareness fits into that? Because he very much stresses that you know, dualistic consciousness is where you end up with me and mine and good mm-hmm. and bad, like it, don't like it, Mm and um, suffering. And so not equanimity. And then with the, I don't know, all-embracing intuitive awareness, the mind doesn't go there. And then he speaks about suchness, the the Mm -hmm. way it is.
0: Ta-ta-ta. Ta-ta-ta. Uh, <laughs> uh, Pronounce it correctly, please. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, I was listening to a talk and it somehow fitted completely yeah. into this. Um, but he, he does say with the intuitive awareness that there may still be a subtle sense of me doing this.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, he uses the uh, intuitive Awareness is his own rendering of sati Satisampajanya. Mm. And so he, he made that uh, uh, very clear, that it was, like, it was quite deliberate. Uh, because sati sampajanya was mostly translated as wi- uh, mindfulness and clear comprehension. It was the most common translation. And that uh, he felt um, that you can be uh, mindful of something that you don't comprehend. Because the word comprehending means like an intellectual understanding as well, so he coined the phrase intuitive awareness to include you can the, the way that you can be aware fully and completely aware of something that you can't understand, like you can be out in the dark night and you can't see, but you're you're not uh, the mind is completely awake and, and, and aware, but you, you you're not you can't see which way is forward because it's dark, so. Um, in that respect, then sati Sampojanya, mindfulness and, and clear comprehension that's not a totally liberated state. That's, that's, um, it's a, a skillful mental quality, but it's not, it's not completely free of, of identification. So I mean, it, it, Lumpur uses the language quite flexibly, but I would say that much of what he's teaching, and a very, very, very common theme and which became very obvious when we were editing his collected teaching, that five volumes of his collected teachings, that his use of the phrases, it's like this, or this is the way it is, or it's this way. Um, or my favorite one is, it's never been more like this than it is. <laughs> <laughs> and you can almost, I think I was even here when he said that. And you, you could feel this sense of, huh? What did he just say? it's never been more like this than it is yeah but <laughs> so it's both kind of clarifying and mind-stopping at the same time so that that i would always say is all pointing to this suchness quality and that uh, it's a um, because and it's also a very good um it's a it's a, uh, a counter counterbalance to a the sort of um, the way in meditation, the mind tends to push away or, want, or rejecting perceptions and thoughts that there somehow it's an intrusion. You don't really want that stuff upsetting your intruding on your, your practice. There's all these things to see and hear and feel, and so that um, he, uh, he he uses that approach of uh, or that emphasising suchness to sort of uh, counteract that that aversiveness or negativity or the way that the many, many meditators want to sort of switch off, wipe out the thinking world or the feeling world or the perceptual world as some kind of intruder. So that then it's just saying, yeah, it's here, but it's such, it's thus. It's, there's, no, there's no thing that's wrong with it. It's, and it's exactly this way. And also the way the mind wants to always tweak the world and make it go in a, a more preferred direction. Uh, <clears throat> and that that also helps to break up the habits of the mind creating time it's exactly this way and so when <clears throat> when people come and visit and the people because it's a it's a a form of expression it's just a, a courtesy people say how are you and i often just say like this <laughs> i'm kind of quoting Lumpur samada but also it's a, it's a the most sort of skillful answer. I'm, I'm exactly like this. This is how I am. <laughs>
2: okay. I think, you know,
0: I, think I missed somewhere your exact definition of such, suchness. You know, many, in terms of experience, one can understand it. But in terms of suchness, how do you define it in words? Suchness, um, well, that uh, it's a, a way of uh, expressing the, um, in a sense, the the presence of, yeah, you know, the the uh, the quality of it, of experience that this is, um, uh, say the the um, the natural and present quality of all experience. It's it's such or it's thus. Uh, it's not easy to define. But it's a it's a quality of of uh, uh, say uh, receiving the patterns of experience uh, but without <laughs> making any kind of judgment in relationship to them.
1: So
2: there is a such of the potatoes, for example.
0: Yeah, your, your perception is part of what is such and thus. That's
2: right,
0: that's right. And that's not always mentioned, you know, that suchness has to do also with the practice of just knowing how you pick up something. Do it. That's why I, I feel the Unpulsa those expressions are like, it's this way, or this is the way it is. Or, mm-hmm. That it's, it keeps sort of... Um, uh, in a way, embodying that quality of suchness. It helps the mind to, to, to hold things in that way because it's like, oh yes, it's like this. <laughs> There's an openness to what's present, um, but, but it's also un, it's encouraging that unbiased quality or not, not uh, as it says in the sense Sin Ming, not, the, uh, not being dualistic about it. To continue? Oh, yes. Well, yeah, that's what I was saying. That you got this progressive uh, development of, of equanimity. So first of all, equanimity based on diversity. There's like, okay, all these people, there's movement, the silos filling up. There's all this noise and activity, and so then there's <coughs> there's this uh, uh, the equanimity based on diversity. Then it's like, okay, there's all these uh, all this activity going on, pulling the senses out. Okay, let's let's disentangle let's let the mind uh, release from its interest and engagement and contending or uh, or grasping and so it inclines towards um that like a, a a stilling in the presence of all of that so it moves towards the jitta viveka and then the jitta viveka is is more fully established when there's that equanimity based on that, on on unity so then it's like oh there's all this people and noise and things, but they're all, you know, all this is, everyone here is anitya dukkha anatta, everything that's experienced on the subject side, the object side, is all anicca dukkha anatta. So there's a, that quality of stillness is based on that jitta viveka. So that, exactly that, that progression of those different kinds of vivekas is describing that. And so that, um, yeah, it's, and as Ajahn Samadhi would often say about Ajahn Chai, he said, you, you really feel that a bomb could go off in the room and he wouldn't be bothered. He would know a bomb's gone off. <laughs> but it, it wouldn't be uh, he it wouldn't be uh, remotely upsetting. <laughs> it's
2: funny because it reminds me of a companion Waduski teaching when he talks about when you look at you know unity of all of this this is for us most sort of this like just realize just a bunch of case.
0: Okay, to continue. Of the ten obstacles or (coughs) fetters, sangyojana, that stand in the way of enlightenment, the penultimate, the one before last, is udacha, restlessness. In this light, we can reflect that atamayata represents the overcoming of this ninth fetter. The restlessness to which this refers is not the fidgeting of the uncomfortable meditator. when we think of restlessness, squirming on our cushion, but uh, the restlessness of Udacca as the ninth fetter is not the fidgeting of the uncomfortable meditator. It is the subtlest of feelings that there might be something better over there, or just in the future. A feeling that that, which is out of reach, might have more value in some way than this. It's that Ever so insidious addiction to time, and its promises. This is why Ajahn Chah would say such things as, quote, "A summoner, a religious seeker, has no future." So to the ego, that's rather threatening. Like, eek! But what about my future? What about my career? My, my life as a monk. I mean, this, there's an investment happened here. My potential. But uh, Lumpacha po uh, made it very clear a summoner has no future. Furthermore, if there is no that, then the nature of this must necessarily be reformulated so that we are not just left with a subject devoid of its object. Does that make sense? No. <laughs> <laughs> so. If when we say atamayata, like there is no that, then it can be felt like that, oh, there's just this knower, but then uh, no thing that is known. But also when uh, when this quality of atamayata is established, it's not just a, uh, a letting go of the the object and re- and just remaining a, a subject. So like a, there's a this and then no that, but rather that, uh, that collapsing of the subject-object duality also changes the, the nature of what is experienced of, um, through direct uh, and unobstructed awareness. So that, uh, 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 the f- as I put it here, if there is no that, no, then the nature of this must necessarily be, form- uh, be reformulated. So that we are not just left with a subject devoid of its object. So, if you've got two things leaning against each other, it's not like you know, subject and object sort of lean on each other. It's not just taking away the subject and leaving the sorry, taking away the object and leaving the and leaving the subject. It's a it's a kind of uh, a, a changing of the di- of the of the um, the dynamic of the whole experiential uh, field. Hard to describe, but um, it's a uh, <clears throat> in a way. I, I, but the, the term I like to use for it is subjectless, objectless awareness, which is not very neat. <laughs> it's a bit a bit wordy, but that uh, it's more the uh, the sort of thing that when the mind is in its clearest moments in meditation, then that uh, that is that's a, that is what is is present. Or you can say it's dhamma-aware of its own nature, or mind-aware of its own nature. Atamayata is the utter abandonment of this root delusion. One sees that in ultimate truth there is no time, no self, no here, no there. So that rather than, quote, be here now, unquote, as a spiritual exhortation, so in Ram Dass's famous book, and... Uh, <coughs> Uh, associated literature. So rather than be here now as a spiritual exhortation, perhaps instead we should say let go of identity, space and time or realize unlocated, timeless selflessness. Needless to say, the conceptual mind falls flat when trying to conjure up an image for such a reality. Kind of... uh, The conceptual mind... falls flat when trying to conjure up an image for such a reality but that is to be expected we are consciously leaving the realm of the conceivable and the purpose of this book is to provide something of a map for those regions where the buses of reason and imagination do not run (laughs) So uh, that might be a bit of an obscure kind of way of putting it but you know where, where often the remote countryside regions they say you know, the buses don't go there, like they're outside of the, the, the perimeter of the town. You know, this is oh, this is a, a remote region. Buses don't go there. There's no service to St Margaret's Lane. So the buses don't run here. So this is um, an expression where, um, where um, uh, it's certainly, well, in English, in some some. Uh, english-speaking countries that when you uh, you'd say um uh someone someone is uh, out where the buses don't run that means though they're, they're a kind of a they they are either they're crazy <laughs> or they think outside the box that kind of uh, they're not limited by normal uh, con, uh habitual ways of, of thinking and seeing um, i remember when we were doing this uh, uh Ajun sudanto at uh, Abhayagiri monastery and uh, he, he said it reminded him of, um, there's this, I, I'm not sure, it's a science fiction movie, um, I think it was done with a German film director, Werner Herzog, or Wim Wenders, or one of those uh, guys. And he said the, 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 the plot, as in, said in, in the future, and then every, uh, every person is under surveillance and all, all vehicles are, are, are monitored. And these people want to sort of break out of the the uh, the prison and the, the the shell of of society, and they're heading towards the border. And then the car keeps saying to them, "You are leaving the zone of control. Yes. You are leaving the zone of control. Turn around. You are leaving the zone of control. Yeah. This is you are you are you are entering the unknown regions. Turn back. Turn back." Mm-hmm. So. But anyway, it's just a, a uh, an expression that uh, I was trying to. Uh, evoke a certain feeling of, of what this book is for because uh, it doesn't uh, uh, relate to areas that are normal conversations maybe everyday conversations at Amravati but <laughs> in most places it's, uh, it's these are things that are hard to um, describe and to create mental images for or to so that uh, I, I feel it's it's useful to recognize when the, the conceptual mind is going, but, 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 uh, 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 it's like, yes, <laughs> that's the correct response. That's absolutely appropriate because you can't imagine that. It's like with, with quantum physics and, and subatomic physics, that they talk about having um, not just uh, three dimensions of space and the fourth dimension being time, but they talk about uh, reality is actually made up of of um, you know, eleven dimensions, and that the the extra seven dimensions are are, are curled up in microsc- in sort of ultra microscopic states, or twenty three dimensions. Like twenty three dimensional space, <laughs> and dimensions that are dimensions that are curled up in little tiny ultra microscopic knots. <clears throat> How can you imagine twenty three different dimensions? And the most int- one of the most um, impressive theories. So I, I, I read a bit of, of um, science and mathematics, um, sort of popular science books and such like And um, one particular theory that, uh, that seems to be quite... That, that accurately represents all subatomic particles as they function and interrelate with each other that are known, it depends on a model of 196,000... Uh, 884 dimensions. 196,884 dimensions. So that, if your mind was being blown by 23 dimensions, try imagining 196,884 dimensions. So the the mind should be appropriately boggled.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, of course, there are con- there are contending theories, but uh, that one—that's uh, one of the one of the theories—just to describe how matter works, just ordinary air, wood, paper. So we are consciously leaving the realm of the conceivable. We are leaving the zone of control. And the purpose of this book is to provide something of a map for those regions where the buses of reason and imagination do not run. It's also quite possible that, on reading these passages on a tamayata, the mind wants to grasp it as, quote, something to get so that I won't be so deluded, unquote. rather than seeing it as a restraining of the habitual outward movement of the mind that comes as a result of disenchantment and dispassion. It's always necessary to be aware of the way that ignorance causes even the means of transcendence to become an obstacle if the mind does not handle it wisely. So the very way that the mind is trying to develop wisdom and liberation can become the very thing that obstructs liberation because of the way the mind takes hold of it. Perhaps one of the simplest and clearest and most practical expressions of the principle of Atamayatā, not made of thatness has come down to us from the teachings of Lumpudun, a direct disciple of Venerable Achan Man and one of the great lights of Dhamma in Asia in recent years. Here is his reformulation of the Four Noble Truths based on the depiction of ignorance, avijja, as the fundamental error of the mind attempting to, quote, go out and pursue thatness in the form of perceptions, feelings and ideas. In reflecting on these four formulae, it might be helpful to recollect the to excuse me. It might be helpful to recollect the analogy of the grasping hand mentioned above, reaching out to become consubstantial with its object and then returning with it. And also, Lumbardun uh, he rejigs it so that the truths uh, four noble truths are um, instead of going uh, suffering one, cause of suffering two, cessation of suffering three, and the path four. He rejigs them as two, one, four, three. So you have the um, cause of suffering first, then suffering, then the path to the end of suffering and the end of suffering. Uh, it's in that form. Also, um, this uh, comes from his collected teachings uh, compiled by one of his disciples, Prat Bodhinandamuni, Muni. And um, there's a, a printed version of some of his teachings by uh, Ajahn, translated by Ajahn Tanisaro called Gifts He Left Behind. We've got lots of copies of that here. But there's a much more comprehensive... I'm not sure if it's on the Dhamma Vault, uh, but uh, um, Ajahn K. Masanto, who's another American bhikkhu, um, who is a disciple of uh, Venerable Ajahn Mahabua, uh, his, uh, his translations are quite comprehensive and also a little bit of a biography of Lungpo Dun. And if you're interested in that, um, which uh, is a sort of slightly different translation and rendering than Ajahn Tanisroh, then that's on the website called um, theravada-dhamma.org theravada-dhamma.org and so you can find the uh, teachings of uh, Lumpur Dun there. So this is uh, this uh, passage about the Four Noble Truths. The mind that goes out in order to satisfy its moods is the cause of suffering. The result that comes from the mind going out in order to satisfy its moods is suffering. The mind seeing the mind clearly is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. The result of the mind seeing the mind clearly is the cessation of suffering. So I know Ajahn Sundar is very fond of this teaching, quotes it regularly.
2: Uh, I read that, Mm-hmm. is Samudaya. Pon, we mean fruit or result, tip by Om, is actually um, the, the result of the fruit or the line that goes out is Dukkha. So I, know, I I read, is that this, I think,
0: is this is uh, uh, Ajahn Kema Santo. It's more complicated, you know, it?
2: it's satisfying, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> of how he expresses it
0: Mm-hmm. Well, these are all teachings for reflection. So this makes sense to me. And that, uh, and so that um, this is where... Uh, this was done before Ajahn Tanisaro did his translation. So this was what, the, what we had uh, available in that time was Ajahn Kemosanto's um, <clears throat> Translations, as I recall, and so that um, the, uh, the the most helpful thing is to um, get a feeling for for how he 's describing it, and so that cause of suffering, the mind going out, the mind getting caught up in an opinion <laughs> like uh, the mind getting caught up in a, a, a sense desire a you know, desirable thing to see or to, to hear or to taste. Um, that uh, that going outness is the cause of suffering and then having gone out and got lost then that is the state The state of suffering is that the mind caught up in that particular feeling or thought or perception and then the the the, uh, the path the mind seeing the mind clearly is the path does that sound ok to you Ajahn?
2: that's
1: simple yeah,
0: yeah. yeah <laughs> so the mind seeing the mind clearly that's the path so that that recognizing, oh, this is what the mind is doing. The mind is, has gone out and got stuck into that particular uh, perception, that taste, that sound, that that opinion. Also,
2: it's added. I mean, the mind
0: seeing the mind clearly. As I said, these are, these are teachings to reflect on, and I, also I feel that it 's helpful to find your own phraseology you know, when you you read things in the suttas and I mean most of you English is not your first language anyway so it 's helpful and even if English is your first language, I find it 's helpful to take a particular teaching or a formulation like this and just to to pick it up, explore it, and then Find your own way of of phrasing it or holding it and and often find i, I would find that a, a way of of um of rejigging it or or of or, or making an emphasis here or there then it brings it alive and as I was saying about about suchness, then you find that okay that really brought it alive six months ago, but now doesn't work <laughs> well that somehow that's become the mind has got the the an english, there's an english word inured which means it's become used to it. It's like it's, it's lost its zing. It's, got, it's become too familiar. So then it's helpful to, to reshape it or, or uh, kind of re, um, uh, reword things or, or, or pick it up and look at it in a different way. Rather like moving the furniture in your room. It's like just sort of put things in a different place. Go, oh, it's a different room now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, uh, and this is a. Um, uh, are very much the style, uh, say uh, particularly of our, our teachers, uh, Lumpo Chao that they would very regularly be taking particular passages from the suttas or particular themes, and then just uh, explore them in certain ways for for a few months or a year or two, and then they would just sort of then rejig it and just sort of talk about things in a in a different way. So that uh, I feel that's a really useful. It's like an interactive way of relating to the sutta teachings that they. They're not, they're not just from an oral tradition from the Buddha's time, but they're, they're, you're, they're something that you're making a living tradition or a living practice within your own, within your own mind, rather than, this is what the Buddha said, and you know, it's, you know, it's this, and it has this meaning. That, uh, it's rather the, the kind of interplay of your own uh, wisdom faculty and reflective abilities with the words to, to help free the heart. That's the most important thing. But, uh, and uh, I know that um, both uh, Ajahn Camasanto doesn't have a very high regard for Ajahn Tanisro's translations and Ajahn Tanisro doesn't have a very high regard for Ajahn Camasanto's translations. Mm-hmm. Thus have I heard. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, but also Ajahn Tanisro, he did read this whole manuscript and gave comment on it and... And so, uh, uh, and also Bhikkhu Bodhi, Ajahn Sugito, and, and many, many others, uh, people who are resident at the Baigiri, so a lot of people have read into this. But uh, the idea of this book is not that it's the final word, but it's like a, a source of, uh, of reflection and exploration for, for people. And the point is, is not to have the perfect theory, you know, your, the ultimate theory of 196,884 dimensions. that explains everything, but to stop suffering. That's the the point of it all is, and so I think we'll leave it there on that note for today.